After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. By your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and the people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. You may be seated. One of the early church fathers was a man whose name was Polycarp. Polycarp is an unusual name to you, but it was not at that time. Polycarp was born in the year, eight, what we call now A.D. 69, about 30 or 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And he lived until 156 A.D. when he died while being burned at the stake at the age of 86. 
At the time that he was burned at the stake, he was one of the bishops, he was the bishop of one of the seven churches named actually in this book of Revelation, the bishop of the church which existed there in Smyrna, these seven churches which, uh, which, to which the book of Revelation was written, which was, which was found in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Now early church tradition suggests that this guy Polycarp was, was, actually, uh, was actually a disciple of the apostle John, that he knew the Apostle John, reported to be the author of, of the fourth gospel, as well as this book, the book of Revelation. So he had a direct connection to the guy who uh, wrote this book. In fact, he's one of the last church leaders to have, a, a well-known church leaders to have had a connection to the original disciples, a very important person in the scriptural story. Irenaeus, Irenaeus, who was one of the uh, the prominent uh, prominent one of his prominent students, and another later person, wrote that he was instructed by the apostles and was brought into contact with many who had seen Christ. Now, keep in mind, the original eyewitnesses were alive in 30 AD or so, so they couldn't have lived so much longer. And so after a while, the original eyewitnesses began to die down. Even those who ever knew some of the original eyewitnesses, they began to die. And yet still, the church continued to thrive with this message that the man named Jesus, who lived in Galilee and was crucified by Roman decree on a cross, this man named Jesus didn't stay dead, but that in fact he was raised up from the dead and, in, and was was indeed the, the true king of the whole earth. Polycarp was one of the few people alive at that time who could testify to having talked to people who had seen the risen Christ. He was, as you might imagine, an important Christian leader, part of the second generation of Christians who oversaw the development of the church as it organized itself into the second century and began to grow. As I said, he was 86 years old when he died, when the Romans finally decided to execute him. They didn't really want to do it, but there was a lot of persecution happening in the second century, and it began to touch all kinds of people, and ultimately reached, actually, Polycarp himself, who refused to hide out from the Romans and was willing to face that judgment if, in fact, he had to had to face it. So there he is, meeting before the proconsul, and he's very old, he's an 80, forgive me if you're 86 years old, but you would, you, by now you might as well admit, you're rather old. And at that time, it was especially, especially old. And this guy did not want to burn him at the stake, did not want to cast him for life, didn't want to do it. So he just urged him to recant. He said to him, all you have to do is say, Caesar is Lord, and offer a bit of incense to Caesar's statue, and you'd be set free. You don't have to mean it, you just have to do it, right? Polycarp, according to the document written only a year after he died, said these words. He says, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Ultimately, the proconsul had no choice. Polycarp was burned at the stake. Praying aloud, his flames consumed his body. They wanted to attach him to the stake, but he said, no, I can stand here and take my punishment. His heroic death was revered by Christians and by pagans alike. 
Now, Polycarp's death because of his faith in Jesus is only one of the, of the most famous of thousands of believers who were willing to lay down their lives rather than to bow down to Caesar, rather than to renounce their faith in Jesus as the true king of the world. Where do they get their courage? How do they get such courage to face such difficult obstacles? Yeah. Well, they got their courage in large part from the very book we're reading today, the book of Revelation. And in particular, this section, the fourth and fifth chapters of Revelation, as this unveiling, this revelation unfolds to describe for those suffering believers. This book was assumed to have been written in the, in the 90s AD as persecution under Domitian. Uh, the emperor was beginning to be more and more pronounced. And, there was, and, and John, who wrote this book, is one to know it's going to get worse. You're going to suffer. But hang in there. I'm going to give to you hope. All that Caesar had to do was, all that Polycarp had to do was say, Caesar is Lord, and he would have been set free, but he wouldn't. Why? Because he was convinced that he served another king, a greater king, one greater than Caesar. He couldn't talk about that king because he served his own king. It was a king who had never held political office. It was a king who was killed as a criminal by the same Roman government that ultimately took Polycarp's life and many other people. This king's name was Jesus. And Polycarp would believe with all his heart and he gave his life for the testimony that this Jesus was the world's true king. That his death wasn't the end of him, but that he was raised from the dead. And that if Polycarp died in faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to him, that he too could plan on living forever with Jesus in the heavenly place and look forward to the time of the new heavens and the new earth. The time when God would right every wrong, restore everything which had been lost, dry every tear, and come to live among his people on a renewed Earth. Where did he get all these ideas? He got them from this book. We tend to look at the book as a, today as a detailed map of apocalyptic visions, all this sort of thing. We get all hyped up about what it might mean to this one. We forget this is a book given to give hope to people who suffered in unimaginable ways. Now, few, if any of us, suffer like Polycarp and many of the early church, early church ever did. But we do suffer. We do go through hard times. We do have questions which don't seem to have answers. We do have difficult decisions to make when we maybe compromise our values for the sake of our pleasures, or compromise our values for the sake of our, our career, or compromise our values for the sake of our relationships. We, we're wondering whether it's really worth it, and we're not sure whether we can be willing to live out a step of this world. But in this book, we see that there's a deeper reality. There is a true king. In fact, Polycarp's wisdom suggests this, that Jesus was the true king of the world, and all other kings, even the Roman emperor, they were merely shabby copies of the ultimate kingship of Jesus Christ. All other kings were parodies. Jesus' kingship was the reality. How did he get this idea? He got it from the fourth and fifth chapter of, Rome, of, of, of Revelation, which Greg read for you. What gave him the courage to face the horrific prospect of being burned alive? He got it, among other things, from the very chapters that we are studying today, which were written only 50 or 60 years before Polycarp's death, written by his own mentor, 
the Apostle John. So let's take a look at this vision today. And, and, and in this fourth and fifth chapters, I had Greg read a portion of it for you. It is a dramatic scene. It is so dramatic that uh, we, we can't quite fathom how dramatic it is. John was exiled to Patmos. He was put away, and he was, he, was, he was not able to be part of the worshiping community. And while he's praying in exile, suddenly he has a vision of a worshiping community, which utterly blows his mind. Utterly changes his perspective. Here he is, separated from the people of God, all on his own, only able to communicate with God, communicate with God directly. And while he's in there, place while he's in a prayer time with the Lord. He has a vision, not of the earthly community gathered around in small settings in places like the Buffalo Chipper homes around the world that time, but he saw a vision of the heavenly community at worship, and he began to see that this was where the true reality of worship was happening, of which the local communities were similarly uh, postcard pictures of that greater reality. So let's take a look today at three things about this heavenly vision. The context of it, the context of it, the content of it, and the consequences of it. Yes, three C's. Sorry for being alliterative today. I couldn't help it. I had two of them, so I found a third, right? That's what preachers do. The context and the content and the consequences of the heavenly vision. First of all, the context of this heavenly vision. As I mentioned already, this book was written to encourage suffering Christians and to give them a hope to live courageous lives, even in the midst of a world which a culture which despised them, did not respect them, often persecuted, persecuted them, and even on a state level, had them killed for their faith. It was written to encourage those people. In the first chapter, it opened, as we discovered last week, with some ringing affirmations which gave them and us a, a hope-filled view of the future. It was a view, vision of God. God as the Alpha and Omega. That God is the Alpha and Omega, not Caesar. A vision of Jesus, that Jesus is the rule of the earth, not Caesar. It gave him a vision of the church, that the church is at the center of God's plan for the universe. And a vision of the future, that someday Jesus will return to make all things new. And it gave him a vision of suffering, that as Jesus conquered through suffering, so too will his people, even if they, like him, have to give their lives for their convictions. It moves on into the first chapter, into the second and third chapters, which we're skipping past, where there are seven letters to seven churches in Asia, modern-day Turkey. One of these, as I mentioned before, was the very church of which Polycarp became the bishop about 50 or 60 years afterward. And now we come to this passage, the fourth and fifth chapter, when this vision of hope begins to explode in technicolor in every way, in ways that could hardly even be described. We have some difficult time interpreting some of these symbols. I don't think we're supposed to be able to figure out exactly what they are. Forget those guys. You know, The way to be sure about teaching the book of Revelation is to read only one commentary on the book. Don't read anything else. You might not be right, but you won't be confused, right? Because you read all of them, they're all under, and I think that's part of the idea. We're meant to see the big picture, that God is in control, that no matter how much we suffer, God will make things right, and that God will bring judgment on all the evils of this world, and that those who honor Jesus Christ will be vindicated just as he was 
one day that the true worship of God is the ultimate reality of, the, of, of this universe and that the worship of any other person, any other deities, any other uh, pleasures, any other things, these are all parodies of the true worship of God. So in this passage, John, after writing this letter to these churches, urging them uh, to conquer and to hold fast, encouraging them and giving them words of commendation as well as criticism, suddenly it says, suddenly it says, and behold, I looked, and behold, a door was standing right there, open in heaven. And in our Bibles, in our ESV version, it is printed with an exclamation point, which, as some of you will know, you're not supposed to use exclamation points very often when you write, but it's used right here. I saw a door open in heaven. Does this mean he saw far away to a future time period, some thousands of years ahead? No, it doesn't mean. It means he saw something happening right next to him. I mean, what did he see? It's as if the door opened and he saw what was going on behind the wall. Something was going on. He didn't even realize what was going on. What John saw was the current heavenly reality behind the shadowy substance of this earth. It's not like a door opening up in the sky to a far, far away place. It's like a door opening right in front of him, allowing him to see what was on the other side of the wall. What was otherwise invisible to him had now become visible. He sees behind the curtain, so to speak. He sees life as it really is. He sees the heavenly throne room which exists in the heavens, and which makes earthly throne, throne rooms seem like little playthings in comparison. He sees the truth, and he's utterly overwhelmed by it. We're given this magnificent view in this fourth and fifth chapter of the glory of God, surrounded by his saints, ready to execute his judgment on the world. God will set everything right, John begins to see. God will dry every tear. He will right every wrong. He will bring judgment on this earth. He will make all things new. And everything that occurs in the rest of this book flows out of that heavenly throne room. The apocalyptic language and the vivid images of this book uh, can be bewildering. And we should approach them with caution. Yeah. They're not really code, they're symbols. Over the course of the centuries, there have been many attempts to connect these visions to particular historical realities. It's happened all the way through history, where we try to say, well, this is what that means. And generally speaking, you look back and say, well, they didn't quite get it right, but I got it figured out, right? Some of us are old enough to remember when many, many specific predictions were made about how the revelation was being fulfilled right before our very eyes. You can remember that in the 60s and the 70s when the common mark was going to go to 10, when, when, when it was going to go to 10 countries, that was going to be the 10 horns. Of, of course, remember, any of you remember that? A few of you? We always are a little embarrassed if we, and then it went to 13 or 14, you know, who knows? And of course now it's, we, 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 it's bewildering. We, 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 we got to see the big picture of which the individual pictures are merely a part. We don't know what all of them mean necessarily. And we should take our convictions and hold them, as I mentioned last week, lightly and respectfully. But what we can see is that John is seeing into the heavenly throne room to a God whose majesty and glory is far greater than we imagine. And it overwhelmed him. You know, a few minutes ago, 
We sang songs of worship. We played music. We said some prayers. I wonder whether our hearts were fully aware of the beautiful reality of what we were doing. Yeah. John saw the reality of the saints and angels around the throne saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Yeah. Are you getting it? That's only a smidgen of what it really is. So when you come into worship, ask God, open your eyes to what is behind the door. Open your eyes, because it will change your reality. We should not be so focused on all the understanding that the details of all these things that come out of it that we miss their larger meaning. So as you read through the rest of this book, you'll see this structured by around sevens. Seven letters to seven churches in chapters two and three. And this scene opens up the opening up of seven seals in chapters six and seven, followed by seven trumpets in chapters eight through 11. And then ultimately we see the picture open up to the ultimate story behind the uh, behind these things and now that is the dragon and the beast and the beast from the land in chapters 12 through 15 which we uh, which I believe to be uh, emblematic of Satan himself and Rome and all the empires which fight against God ultimately at the end in chapters 15 and 16 through 19 or so we have the seven bowls of God's wrath similar to the plagues of Egypt in chapters 15 and 16 there the effects described in chapter 7 and this defeats the two beasts in chapters 9 and in the final victory over the dragon himself in chapter 20 all of which clears the way for the ultimate reality that there is a new heaven and a new earth where heaven and earth which were split about part by human sin, but which Jesus prayed would come back together in his Lord's prayer, are now fully brought together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where God walks among his people. Jesus walks among his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And ultimately the prayer of Jesus, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, becomes fully reality, the full reality. Someday, this is where God is going to make things happen. All of this flows out of the very throne room of which we are seeing this picture in chapters 4 and 5. That's the context of the heavenly vision. Well, what is the content of this heavenly vision? Well, he says here, then I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And what is the kind? We see, first of all, the heavenly glory of the king. He sees the king seated on the throne. And at once he says, I was in the spirit, and a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. We hear, he's using the, the most beautiful images, the most costly images. They can think to talk about the glory of this one who goes beyond expression. There are not words to say. Yes, he's seated on the throne. He's clothed in majesty. 
and he's surrounded by his counsel. Notice what it goes on to say. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Who are these 24? Careful how we look at all these images. But generally speaking, it is thought to be the 12, 24 are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles representing the complete and perfect people of God circling around uh, the, uh, the, 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 the throne of God. We see that he is, it is awesome in power from the throne. Verse 5, in flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. I mean, this is an old... And throughout Revelation, whenever we see God's glory, we see it in these, uh, these vivid images of lightning and earthquakes and just stuff. The largest, most... Uh, what's, the, what's the most horrifying thing you can think of? Is it not perhaps an earthquake or lightning or perhaps a flood which comes over you? He's saying this is... This is amazing. I can't quite handle it, you know? We have a hard time imagining the glory of God. We tend to think when I go to drink from the glory of God, when we turn on the water faucet and take a little drink, you know, that's the glory. But in fact, it's a fire hose. It's like, oh my goodness, this is way too much. I can't handle all this. Have you ever had that happen? When you walk out into a snowstorm, you think, I am not dressed right for this. I'm not ready. This is more than I can handle. Or you step into the sun and you look, oh, this is too hot. This, he's using these kinds of images to speak about a God who is massive in his power. A God who could say, let there be light. There was light. He created energy. He created. He is the source of our whole being. He is surrounded by his counsel. He is awesome in his power. Before their throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Well, there's a mystery about this. The sea is a provocative image in scripture. And often it is seen that the sea is where the place of evil happens, where the source of evil comes. I could go into the details, and I, we can't make a strong statement, but it seems to, but if you think about, if you think about Jonah being captured by the sea, you think of Jesus and the sea coming over, you think of Paul being shipwrecked by the sea, you see, and you think of in this past, in this, uh, in this um, actual book of Revelation, uh, we see that the sea, uh, uh, the, the beast emerges from the sea. And we also see that in the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, there will be no sea. So the image that we tend to think of is, is the sea is where, for what for us are the massive forces of evil. For God is a simple bowl in front of him, where God watches over evil. Someday, God will make it go away. Well, we can't say that with certainty. But doesn't your heart give a little leap when you hear it? Yeah. The Christian gospel does not 
say, turn a blind eye towards evil. It says evil is real and it hurts and it's bad. But God has a reason why for now he's letting it have its way. And what happened to Jesus? But evil took out its worst on Jesus and Jesus conquered evil, right? Until that final day when the sea is cast away, when evil is no more. The heavenly glory of the king. And in light of this, then we have the heavenly worship of the king in verses 7 and following and before the throne and around each side of the throne are the four living creatures, eyes in front and eyes behind. First living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a face of a man, the fourth like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What are these creatures? What's going on? All creation with the wild beasts. Well, it speaks about the... Oh, let's quickly go through it. We see uh, the, the creature like a lion, the king of the wild beasts. The creature like... Hello? Did I just go away? Yes. I'm going to speak up. All right. We lost power. Can you hear me? I'm gonna, oh boy, this is going to be fun. <laughs> you think the sermon's going to get shorter, but I'll tell you it's not. I'll do my best. We see the, wild, the, 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 the lion, the king of the wild beasts. We, am I back on? We, <sighs> we see the lion, the king of the wild beasts. We see the ox, the king of all the domestic beasts. We see the eagle, the king of all the beasts of the air, and we see humanity, all of whom are surrounding the throne with the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy. Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping God because he is holy. He is the one. I, I love uh, Sorry, there's so much I want to say. Holy is who was and is and is to come. Who was, that means he had no beginning. And he is, he's always ever present and is to come. He always has been, always will be. He is the one who was and is and is to come. Now contrast that with the story later about the beast. In chapter 17 and verse 8, he also is worshipped. And it says this in 17 and verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not. And it's about to rise in the bottom of the pit and go to destruction because it was and is not and is to come. It's a parody of the truth of the risen, of the, of the always existent, ever-present God of the universe. You see, in many ways, Revelation is about the contrast between the reality of God's kingdom and the parody of human kingdoms. So stop getting so riled up about our human kingdoms. Okay? That's what John is saying. There's a deeper reality going on here. Yes, he is the one who was and is and is to come. And what has he done? Why is he worthy of our praise? The next part of it goes on. Human, the, the because begins to happen there. We praise God for who he is, but also for what he has done. Worthy, verse 11, are you, O Lord, to receive glory and power and honor? For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. You and I. We're created for 
God. It's why we exist. And this is why worship is not just a clever little thing we do on a Sunday morning because we've got nothing better to do. Worship is at the heart of our humanity. Everyone worships. If not if, but what? You know, on a typical Sunday morning in the fall, you will find that people will gather for worship. They will do it having studied the object of their worship all week. And they have a certain time in mind when they go to gather for that worship on a Sunday. They often put on special clothes for the occasion. Their whole posture changes. And if possible, they like to go right to the, the very center of where that's happening. And once it begins, they begin to shout with anticipation. They begin to say, here we go! Touchdown! Yes! We win! Their whole lives rise and fall. No, I'm not against sports. I love sports. I played three of them in high school, and uh, I just got through riding a bicycle in a long time. I love sports. It's not about that. But it really is an act of worship. It's what we give our lives to, our time to, our attention to. We can't help but study the facts. I cannot believe that anybody cares about football in April, February, and March. It's baseball season, don't you know? <laughs> no, I am that way about baseball, so I don't have nothing to say. I want to know what's going on in all the mining systems. I don't know about all the trades. Why? Because these things matter to me. It's important that things matter to us, but they must not become ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is the God who made us and for whom we exist and we're created, and wise ones among us understand that. Yeah. Our culture worships something. Mostly it fits into the triad of money, sex, and power. And if you think about it, you'll know that's true. And you, if you think about it carefully enough, you will know that you are tempted to worship all three of those things too. Whatever you worship causes shocks in your life. Whatever you worship, you surrender yourself to. Whatever you worship controls you. All creation comes from God, flows from God, belongs to God. We find our true purpose and relationship to him. That's what John saw. That's the fourth chapter of this. But then there's the fifth chapter, which if possible, even more is even more beautiful than this. The fifth chapter. Then I saw the right hand of him who was sitting on the throne in the right hand, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It's, it's a blueprint. It's a, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it's the design of what's, it's the will and testament. He's holding it. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy? To open the scroll and break its seals. We all want to know what's going to happen next. Who's worthy to open it up? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more. For behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's going on here? Oh, if I just, oh, what a great movie this would be. What a great picture this would paint. Who can open up the scroll? No one. And then suddenly, no weeping. The lion of the lamb. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? Judah was called the lion, and from Judah's line came Jesus, the lion of the lamb of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered. He can open up the seals. And so I looked, so it says I turned. So I turned to look. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a, a what? Not a lion. A lamb. What? Can you think of a greater difference between the two? The king of the jungle. A lamb led to slaughter. This is the lion who looks like a lamb. And look, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Oh, the beautiful beauty of this worship <coughs> is that the lion who is a lamb, who gave his life. He is the one who has conquered by his death, by being slain, conquered the powers of evil, and he can open up the scroll to show us what God is going to do. He is a lion. Who is a lamb? He has seven horns. That means he's all powerful. Horns are powerful. Seven eyes means all seeing. And the seven spirits of God said, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. Oh, they're singing. They got a harp, a guitar. They can't help. Music comes out. Because of the beauty of this story, the lion who is a lamb who laid down his life and therefore can finish the purposes of God, which will destroy evil. They're holding a harp and bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Yeah, you're not just talking to the sky. You're filling bowls of incense with prayers. And they sang a new song, singing, Worthy are you, I'm just making this up, but here's how it goes today, to take the scrolls and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth maybe it went like that see I looked 
and around the throne, living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands. The song is so good, the angels want to join in. Let's sing that song. Worthy are you, right? I don't remember when, but that's what they sang. And then they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the 24 elders sang it first. The thousands of angels sang it next. But then look in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say, To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, bless glory on forever and ever. And the four little creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Every time you gather on a Sunday morning, you have the chance to join that song. It's going well all the time. The door was opened, but it didn't get closed, right? You just can't see it. All the time. We are able to join in that heavenly chorus, worshipping the Creator who made us and the Redeemer who saved us. The one, it says, to him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor. We seek identification that God is now among us as Jesus who lived in the flesh. We worship God through Jesus. They're one and the same. Yes. Well, because of this heavenly vision, what are some of its consequences? Well, we have a hope which cannot be shaken. No matter what awful things happen to you, God is in control. No matter how hard it hurts. That's what Polycarp knew. We have a hope which cannot be shaken. We have a mission which we must fulfill. We are a kingdom of priests. We're called to be evidences of this new kingdom of God, living like God's new humanity in the midst of this broken down world, planting flags for the sake of the kingdom of God, being the truly human people God made us to be because our true humanity is found when we stop worshiping money or sex or power, but rather worshiping the God who made us and who in his self-giving love gave to us life so we practice that self-giving love in the way we run our business, the way we run our families, the way we live our lives, the way we treat our neighbors, everything in our lives. We have that mission. We are a kingdom of priests. We have a hope. We have a mission. And we have a choice. Will I worship the one who made me and the one who rescued me? Or will I bow down and worship to the false gods of this world? Jesus gave his life so that we could have new life through him. And so every time we gather, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us when he, the Lamb, laid down his life for the sake of our sin, so that evil could be vanquished, so that new life could come. And so all the judgments which God has reserved in the time flawed of that one judgment would happen when Jesus gave his life for a broken humanity. But we must respond in faith. I hope you, like Polycarp, will say, how can I deny the one who made me and who saved me? 
Let's respond in faith from today. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You are the Redeemer, one who rescued us. Heavenly Father, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you are holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. We were made for you. We come to you today. Help us to respond in faith to you and find a hope and a mission. And may we make the choice to do whatever it is you ask us to do. And face whatever challenge we have to face. We ask this in Jesus' name.